I've not seen it, but apparently on the front of the Statue of Liberty in New York, there's a sign that reads, Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Um, I quite enjoy the comedian Jerry Seinfeld, and uh, he had this to say about the sign. He said, I'm all for open immigration, but do we have to have that sign? Can't we just say, hey, the door's open, we'll take whoever you've got. Do you have to specify the wretched refuse? Why not just say, give us the unhappy, the sad, the slow, the ugly, the people that can't drive, the people that have trouble merging if they can't stay in their lane, if they don't signal, they can't parallel park, if they're sneezing, if they're snuffed up, if they have bad penmanship, if they don't return phone calls, if they have dandruff, if they, don't, uh, if they have food between their teeth. In other words, any dysfunctional, defective slob that you can somehow cattle prod into a wagon, send them over, we want them. Tonight we uh, finish this short series in 1 Samuel. Not sure when we're going to return to the book, actually. Keep reading, though. It's great stuff. But tonight we look at chapters 21 and 22, and our key word, our key word tonight is refuge. Refuge. That sign on the front of the Statue of Liberty promises refuge. It's a good sign because it recognises that life in this world is hard. It recognises that because life in this world is hard, people need refuge. That sign recognises that life can leave you beaten and bruised and in need of help. It's a kind sign that offers help. How much refuge is actually delivered is another matter, but it's a good sign. Tonight in the Bible, we're, we're not thinking about the Statue of Liberty. We're thinking about the Christ of God the Lord's King. And what we see tonight is that the Christ of God, he promises true and lasting refuge. So make sure you have your Bible open at 1 Samuel 21. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin there. How about I pray and ask for God to help us. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that perhaps even after a weekend, even today, we've found life to be difficult. There are things perhaps even in our mind now which are troubling us, disappointing us, just (coughs) occupying our thoughts, Father. And that word refuge really rings good bells for us. We want refuge. We recognise that we need refuge. We need safety. We need shelter. And so, Father, we want to ask that you'd help us to understand what true refuge is. We want to ask that you might help us to understand how is it that your Christ might offer true and lasting refuge, true and lasting safety. We ask that you might help us to understand this, Father, for our, for our sake, but also so that we might properly honour the Christ in recognising just how good he truly is. Amen. Well, point one on your outline. Uh, David, in these chapters before us tonight, and uh, thanks to James and Jess for reading them, though they were quite long, James, uh, David, in these chapters before us tonight, again, is a man on the run. He's a man on the run. It's a bit of a common theme in these chapters of uh, 1 Samuel. David's being hunted by Saul. He's a man on the run. I, I don't know if you noticed it, but uh, you might have got tired as you were hearing about thinking all the different places David went. Did, did you notice that? From Gibeah to Nob to Gath to a cave, to Moab, to Hereth. 
David is on the run from King Saul. He is a man in search of refuge. And his first stop in our passage is this town of Nob, which was known as the city of the priests. That's where David flees, and in particular to the priest Ahimelech. And from Ahimelech, David gathers food and a weapon. Not just any food, notice, the holy bread, no less, normally only eaten by the priests, and not just any weapon, was it? It was the sword of Goliath. Last time we read of that sword was back in chapter 17, where the young David had killed Goliath, remember, with a sling and a stone, and then he'd actually picked up Goliath's sword and he'd used his own sword to cut off Goliath's head. Now, how the sword ended up in Nob, under the priest's care, we're not told, but David's not going to turn it down, is he? Verse 9, there is none like it. and Give it to me. It may even be that he knew the sword was there, that's why he went, can't tell. But there's none like that sword, give it to me. <clears throat> and look, there's lots we can, lots of, uh, we could spend a lot of time on this encounter here. David being given the consecrated bread is significant because it was so unusual. It was actually against the law because he wasn't a priest. And it's hard to read of it and to not see in this encounter the Lord sustaining his Christ through Ahimelech. It's hard to read this and not see the hidden hand of the Lord sustaining his Christ through the priest Ahimelech. But what I want us to especially notice in this first encounter is the character in the background the whole time. He's the one standing in shadow. He's barely visible. He inevitably dressed in black, but significant nevertheless. I wonder if you can spot him there in verse 7. Verse 7, now one of Saul's servants was there that day, <clears throat> detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite. Saul's head shepherd there's no way that you could read verse 7 without sensing some sort of dread Doeg was an Edomite and Edom was an historic enemy of Israel but more significantly Doeg worked for Saul and clearly he had at least seen and perhaps even overheard David with Ahimelech that cannot be good, is what we ought to be thinking. And we'd be right. His presence, in fact, is clear evidence that David is in danger and needs refuge. Remember, David couldn't afford to be in one place too long. Remember how he described his situation to Jonathan last time in uh, chapter 20? He said, there was only a step between him and death. And so as we keep reading from Nob, David flees. He flees Saul. But where he flees to is breathtaking, really. Because if you're reading it in verse 10, he flees to Gath. Now listen, if there was one thing that David had a reputation for, if there was one thing that David had a reputation for, it was for killing Philistines. Goliath was his biggest, most famous kill, but it was really just the beginning of many. The Israelites back home, they sang songs of David slaying his tens of thousands of Philistines. And even if that might have been a bit inflated, you get the idea. So the last place you think that David would flee would be to Philistine territory. But that's where he goes. Verse 10, that day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Gath was one of the main Philistine cities. 
Why would David go there? We're not told. It surely, though, speaks loudly of the desperation of David at that time. He clearly feared Saul more than he even feared the Philistines. It was probably the last place Saul would look for him, and for good reason. The Philistines would have hated David. He carried the sword of their warrior champion that he had beheaded. But to the city of Gath, David fled. And not so surprisingly, he quickly fell into Philistine hands. They'd heard the slogans too. They'd heard the singing. And he was brought before King Achish. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. It's a fairly graphic picture, isn't it? A little bit like Bill Evans in the morning, perhaps, I don't know. But David was in desperate trouble and he knew it. Maybe going to Gath, in the first place was crazy, but acting crazy was the only chance of escape. And crazily, it worked. Verse 14, Akish said to his servants, look at this man, he's insane. Why do you bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? I reckon as you read this, the obvious question to ask are, How could the Philistines be so easily fooled? How could they let their arch enemy go? Are they really going to fall for a dumb ploy like that? And to answer, some people will say, well, you know, David was a really good actor. Others might say, yeah, but David was really cunning. But you know what? David would say, no, none of those answers are right. He would answer very differently. How did David escape? How How did he pull it off? Well, Psalm 34 helps us to know the answer. Remember a couple of weeks back I said that uh, in this turbulent time of David's life, he composed a number of the Psalms. Well, actually, two Psalms come from being captured by the Philistines, Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, and both explain how David managed to escape the Philistines. But Psalm 34 is where we're going to look. So stick your finger in 1 Samuel and head right to Psalm 34 with me, please. Psalm 34, give you a chance to find it. Psalm 34, can't hear many pages turning, maybe you're very quick. Psalm 34, if you look at the inscription at the beginning, it says, of David when he pretended to be insane. Okay, and have a look at the verse, verse 1 with me. David says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. How could such a crazy escape plan like acting crazy work? It couldn't. No way it's going to work. But the Lord heard the call of his chosen one, you see. And the Lord delivered him. The Lord saved David and significantly if you keep on reading and look at the rest of the psalm 
David in Psalm 34 goes on to invite people to join him in enjoying the safety of the Lord. Have a look at verse 5 of Psalm 34. David says, Those who look to him, those who look to the Lord, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. In verse 8, can you see it? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's that word. And it's really that last phrase in verse 8 that jumps out at me. Blessed is the man, blessed is the person who takes refuge in the Lord. And if you've got your thinking cap on, your brain switched on, you think, hang on, that's really similar to that last phrase in Psalm 2 that we've been looking at the last few weeks. Remember that, remember that phrase? End of Psalm 2, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in the Christ. See, David knew after he escaped from the Philistines, he knew that he had found refuge in the Lord. He knew the Lord had delivered him. He knew the Lord had saved him. And so here in Psalm 34, after being delivered from the Lord, uh, sorry, by the Lord, after himself finding refuge in the Lord, David invites others to join him in taking refuge too. And you know what? That is exactly what happens next in 1 Samuel. So take your finger out of Psalm 34 and this time head back to 1 Samuel and we're up to chapter 22. I'll give you a chance to go back there. Chapter 22, we're up to point two on your outline. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 22, what we find is people seeking refuge in the Christ as he found refuge in the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 22, David left Gath, escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Christ. And here they are. But they're not a particularly impressive bunch, are they? These are the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. Maybe not the dysfunctional, defective slobs that Seinfeld was worried about, but probably pretty close, you know. The guys who came, the people who came to David, they were in distress. They were all the people who were in debt. They were all the people who were discontented. About 400 of them gathered around David in a cave in hiding from Saul. All those who had suffered under Saul's kingdom. All those who had nothing to gain in Saul's kingdom. All those who were hated and beaten in Saul's kingdom. They gathered around David. Because they were seeking a new kingdom, you see. They were seeking the kingdom of the Christ. But they were weary. And they were downtrodden. And they were oppressed. And they became the followers of David. I wonder if anything familiar is sounding in that. We'll come back to it later. But if we keep following the action, we discover that from the cave, David went to Moab. In verses 3 and 4, we're told to leave his parents there in safety. It's another strange destination on David's little Kentucky tour here. Moab was another enemy of the Old Testament people of God. And to go to Moab seems almost as crazy as going to Gath. 
But of course, we need to think and remember that David had a special connection to Moab. I wonder if you remember. His great-grandmother, Ruth, was from Moab. And so here you see, we see the sovereignty of the Lord God spanning time and circumstances and puzzle pieces hundreds of years old fall into place as David the Christ provides refuge for his family through the Lord. But from Moab, it's on to Hereth, and the darkness of Doeg's presence way back in Nob is finally revealed. Verse 6 of uh, chapter 22, Saul makes a late appearance in our our passage, but it's a fairly predictable appearance, isn't it? Because he pops onto the stage and he is again demanding David's life. He's berating his officials for their lack of loyalty, their lack of insight, their lack of results in tracking down David in order to kill him. And in the midst of all of that, Doeg, the Edomite, steps forward. Verse 9. Verse 9. But Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, and his father's whole family, who were the priests of Nob, and they all came to the king. Doeg betrays Ahimelech and betrays David. As we keep on reading, Saul questions Ahimelech, and Ahimelech protests his innocence and the innocence of David. And after all of that, Saul makes his despicable ruling. Verse 16, the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech. You and your father's whole family. But they were the priests of the Lord. And Saul's order there demonstrates the evil that he was capable of. Even Saul's officials were not willing to lift hands against them. But Doeg had no such hesitation. Verse 18. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. And so Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. It's a terrible outcome. It's a terrible portrayal of the hatred of the Christ. So determined was Saul to destroy David that he wiped out an entire family, an entire town, a town of the priests of the Lord, no less. It's a terrible outcome. Except, of course, one survived, didn't he? One survived the carnage. His name was Abiathar. He was the son of Ahimelech. He had just witnessed, okay, put yourself in his place. He had just witnessed the rage of Saul against David. He had just witnessed the power of Saul against David. And he flees. Where does he flee? And to whom does he flee? Well, it's a bit surprising, I reckon. It's as surprising as David fleeing to Gath. Abiathar flees to David. See why that's surprising? David, though, doesn't consider it surprising. Look at David's response in verse 20. But Abiathar, a son of Ahimelech, son of Ahitob, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Verse 22, then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your father's whole family. David takes responsibility for what happened. 
But notice the strange logic, the strange logic of the last thing that he says to Abiathar in verse 23. David says to him, stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You'll be safe with me. Don't you think that's strange logic? We might expect him to say, what are you doing, Abiathar? The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. The last place you should be is with me. That's what we might expect him to say. But instead, David says, stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who is seeking your life is seeking mine also. You will be safe with me. That's a great sentence, that last one, don't you think? You will be safe with me. Brothers and sisters, there speaks the Christ. There speaks the one who knows of the refuge of the Lord and invites others to share in it through him. David is hated by Saul. He is hunted by Saul. He knows that Abiathar will be hated and hunted too, but he promises safety to him. Like the other 400 men around him, Abiathar, you see, went to the Christ and the Christ promised him refuge, refuge from a hard, hating world. And it's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful promise. But of course, hopefully, you can hear in this promise of David an infinitely more wonderful promise of refuge, an infinitely better promise of deliverance from the hardships and the hatred of this world, an infinitely more secure promise of safety. I wonder if you can hear it. For some 1,000 years after David made this promise, from the very family tree of David comes his greatest ancestor. From the Christ, small c, comes the ultimate Christ, capital C, the Son of God. And Jesus made this promise in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is the call of the Christ, capital C. There is the promise of refuge, an infinitely better and more wonderful promise of safety and refuge and rest. Really the fulfilment of David's promise to Abiathar and the 400 with him in the cave. As Jesus, the ultimate Christ, the Son of God no less, calls people to come to the Father through faith in him. And just like those in distress and debt and discontent with the world, just like they gathered around David, just like Abiathar was escaping the hatred of the world, so Jesus, you see, calls the weary and the burdened and he offers rest for our souls. He offers refuge. It's a wonderful call. It's a wonderful promise, don't you think? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See how you're weary of this world? I sure am. These last few weeks I've been as weary as I've ever been 
I'm weary of the sin-stained brokenness of this world. I'm weary of the pain in this world. I'm weary of the loneliness, the disappointment, the grief of this world. I'm weary of the loss. I'm weary of the injustice. I'm weary of the hurt. I'm weary of the futility. I'm weary of the lack of wisdom and truth and righteousness. I'm weary of jealousy. I'm weary of malice. I'm weary of deceit. I'm weary of the arrogance of this world. I'm weary of how hard it all is. And I'm weary of my own sin too. I'm weary of finding all the stuff that I detest in the world out there so often infecting me. I'm weary of my lovelessness. I'm weary of my stupid pride. I'm weary of my weaknesses. I'm weary of my selfishness. I am weary. And you know what? There seems to be so much hard stuff going on even just within our church family at the moment just in our own lives and it's not it's not extraordinarily hard you know it's not the hardships we are facing as a church family they're not not sort of out of the ordinary hardships but they are hard and they are wearying and they are burdensome so how wonderful to have the christ himself promise Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Rest. We long for his rest, don't we? We long to seek refuge in him. And so we come to Jesus, the bread of life, who promises that whoever comes to him will never go hungry, who promises that the one who believes in him will never be thirsty, Jesus, like we heard, the good shepherd who has come so that his followers might have life to the full. We come to Jesus, weary and burdened, seeking rest, seeking refuge. But you know what? Unlike those people in 1 Samuel, we come to the Christ not in a cave, but on a cross. We come to the good shepherd, you see, who laid down his life for his sheep. We come to the one who has been lifted up on that cross so that we might be freed from the burden of our sin. We come to the one who has been lifted up on that cross, wounded so that we might be healed of our sin. We come to the one who has been lifted up on that cross so as to overcome the world for us. We come to the one who has been lifted up on a cross so that he might win for us rest. We come to Jesus and we find rest. A rest, you know, that we enjoy even now. Even now, you know, in the midst of hardship and tribulation in this world. So that even in the very midst of disappointment and hardship and sadness, we can still have joy as the people of Jesus. We can still have hope. And so that even though now we we will have trouble in this world, we can still enjoy peace. We can still take heart. For Jesus in his death and resurrection has overcome the world. But at the same time, boy, (coughs) we eagerly await and anticipate that final day, don't we, when the risen Lord Jesus, the Christ, when he will return for us. And when he comes back, you know what? He's going to usher in the ultimate rest. It will be a new creation. 
It will be life forever and full. And the Apostle John, of course, was given this marvellous vision of that future, a marvellous vision of that rest. And in Revelation chapter 7, he's shown a picture of the people of the Christ who have been rescued from the hardship of the world and have been delivered into the safety of the next. Let me read to you how he describes what he saw. They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's rest, isn't it? That's refuge. What a lovely image to have the Lord God spread his tent over us. To have the lamb at the centre of the throne as our shepherd leading us to springs of living water. To have God wiping every tear from our eyes. You know, brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus promised to us who belong to him tonight, his promise. It's the echo, really, of David's words to Abiathar. But Christ Jesus' promise to you, if you belong to him tonight, is this. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. If the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. You will be safe with me. How about we pray? Lord Jesus, we come to you even tonight weary and burdened just with the hardship of life in this broken world and that promise of yours Lord Jesus of rest is uh, well it's just so soothing please help us to believe you bread of life we, we recognise your promise that whoever comes to you will never go hungry will never be thirsty we recognise and accept your promise that you are the good shepherd who promises life to the full to your sheep. And Lord Jesus, we're astonished at the lengths you would go to to win us rest. Rest from our own sin. Rest from the sin of this world that even you would allow yourself to be lifted up on that cross. And so we thank you. And we thank you that even now we can be people of hope and people of joy, even as we cry. But Lord Jesus, we are so looking forward to that day when you will bring in that ultimate rest. May it be soon. But as we wait, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would stay with you and we ask that you would keep us safe, that you would give us rest, that you'd keep us safe. Amen.